0: mobilized by the secret masters they are the department of nerdly affairs
1: hello operatives and welcome to the department of nerdly affairs i'm your host rob patterson here with my co-host don chisholm and as a wise man once said me lose brain Uh uh-oh and tonight we're going to be talking about intelligence or in some people's case the lack thereof (laughs) Um, what does intelligence mean in our culture and how does our culture portray intelligence, especially in the media? Let's find out. So to join us, of course, since Don and I can't quite keep up with this subject, we have Jack Ward helping us out.
2: Did you get that message? What message? I just, the one I just sent you with my brain. Oh, <laughs> Jack, Jack, Jack. I will, I will try to use the old-fashioned words. Be, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs>
1: Sorry, Jack, we keep forgetting you're from the future, when mankind has evolved from you know, the primitive form that we are now into, some, into giant floating brain people.
2: That's right, dum-dums.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's a little Flintstones reference for you people there. Uh, the Great Gazoo. The Great Gazoo. Was what a great be- what a great character he showed up to be. It was fun.
1: Yeah, well, wasn't he really just there to kind of spice things up? Because probably they were worried that the show was getting a little dull for the kiddies.
2: Absolutely.
1: I mean, yeah. anytime a character like that appears, like him or Scrappy-Doo or anyone else, it's usually because, you know, the show is getting just a little bit too dull or highbrow, and they have to kind mm-hmm. of dumb it down.
3: Hmm.
2: So does that mix of Plitzelit do the same thing? Pretty much. it's basically the same character, but for Superman. That's
1: I'd be curious point. to know which one came first. Oh.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I think, Probably Mix... Yeah.
1: The well, say? Mix- like. a Plitic or however you... plitzelic. P-
3: yeah.
2: But
1: yeah. But. <laughs> just, just don't say it backwards or you'll disappear. <laughs> well, I guess the thing is we do need that goofball comic relief character. I mean, mm-hmm. especially the weird one. And maybe need is a strong word, but... They do like putting those goofball comic relief characters in anyway. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, so since we are all of people of reasonable intelligence, let's discuss what intelligence is first.
2: Before, so I just want to throw out he came in 1944, so he was definitely before the uh, the great Kazoo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He okay. would definitely be before.
1: Um, Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. So one <laughs> was probably a ripoff of the other, but, of course, you didn't need to get Kazoo to say his name backwards to get rid of him.
2: No, mm-hmm. absolutely not.
1: All right.
0: So, Don, <laughs> what is intelligence? That's uh, a, uh, a a complicated issue. Um, we were just talking about this before the show. Um, I think if you're going to talk intelligence, because it's, it's generally considered smarts, knowledge, mm-hmm. um, ability to apply, I guess you'd say, intellectual power to tasks. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to talk how it's represented in in, in in culture and entertainment, you have to sort of break it down into two things. Mm-hmm. And that would be intelligence and wisdom. Again, keeping with our uh, D&D cosmology here for such things. Right. Uh, and I think in the modern era right now, intelligence is generally considered like book knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like your ability to bring up fact, your ability to know trivia, your ability to say, um, to connect things up intellectually. Like that's the old detective thing. Mm -hmm. Why he had a left-handed cane and played baseball in 1988. So that must mean that kind of thing is intelligence and wisdom. Yeah. Wisdom is kind of the idea of Mm -hmm. knowing how the world works. Um, more the homespun kind of stuff, more practical knowledge? Well, I would
1: say this. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, I was watching um, some YouTube videos earlier today, and I happened to cross one by uh, Professor Jordan Peterson. Please mm. don't turn off, folks. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Professor Jordan Peterson, where he, someone asked him about um, memory, and he had an interesting point, which is basically memory is there to help us learn and avoid making the same mistakes over and over again. He had some much more erudite way of putting it, but basically that, and that's what I'd equate with wisdom, right? That we have memory so that we can learn from our past and so that we can hopefully make better choices in the future. That's that's the practical survival role it plays. And I'd say I wisdom was, is part of that.
2: Yeah, I was going to suggest uh before you mentioned that, that intelligence is the learning of something and wisdom is the application therefore of. Okay. So, like and i was saying that because i was thinking about my my dear ex uh mother-in-law who was extremely smart um when it came to intelligence like she had a number of different degrees and and worked as as a pharmacist at the hospital so she knew latin and all that kinds of stuff like that but if you put her out in a street she was marcus brody
1: <laughs>
2: you, know, you know like is, is anybody here speak ancient greek <laughs> ancient right. greek you know Right, or Rosicrucian <laughs> like it was just she wouldn't right. know what to do with herself, right, so you know I think the application thereof is is the wisdom and the intelligence and and we're, let's be fair like what I love too about this topic is it fits so well with DNA because mm-hmm. um lately we've we've associated a lot of intelligence with geekiness mm. Mm-hmm. And so we should we should have a conversation at some point as if that's earned or not. Okay,
1: that's it. That's actually an interesting point. It's because the first thing I think of when you differentiate wisdom and intelligence is you know nerds or geeks, high intelligence, low wisdom.
0: Yeah, kind of, and that's and that's why I think it's good Jack is here because this does tie in with uh, the episode we did a long time ago about nerds, about how there really aren't mm-hmm. nerds anymore and how that happened. Mm-hmm.
2: I was there for that. Yes, you, you were. Are. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Hyperlink here. Yes, there we go. No, we'll, we'll include
1: a hyperlink in the show notes.
2: Yes. No, it's no, it's already here in the audio. You don't need oh. it in the show notes. <laughs> Remember, I used to do audio hyperlinks. That was a while ago. That's right.
1: <laughs> audio hyperlinks. There we go. All right. So um, so after, well, why don't we play off of that then? Well, I mean, why save it for later? So, nerds. Are they really smart or are they really are they wise? What's the deal? Let's let's fight. Let's discuss.
2: Do you want so my here's my thought about it. I was reading an article about it and they were saying, you know, why is um why It was actually a thread somewhere, and they were saying, you know, Art, why are nerds uh, smart? And most people wrote they're not. You know, they just kept mm. going all the way down <laughs> that they're not smart. But I think the truth of the matter is, is that most nerds are outsiders, and mm. outsiders, because they're not the big football or sports people, they've had a lot more time to try to be more introspective or read into other things. So they become book smart and not mm. wisdom smart. But book smart for 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 the reason that if they didn't do that, they'd go crazy because they've got nothing else for them, kind of thing. Right in that respect, until they meet other nerds like that, and then they feed off of each other as to who has the best trivia for things and stuff like that, and that becomes like the like the the fight of the nerds, right? Who's the smartest nerd of all, right? <laughs> and so then then you can have these kinds. There's actually a a podcast, Geek Versus Nerds, where they take like, the most nerdiest of subjects. It's my old ex-co-host, uh, 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 Andrew Dorfman, who created it. And they've got one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. Huh. And they'll do things like, who's the best, who's the best pilot? Um, uh, Captain, Captain Reynolds or, um, uh, or uh, oh, my God, I just can't believe I, I blanked on it. Or Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And when they did it live at one of the co- uh, conventions, Nathan Fillion called in. oh my god so he had to win right (laughs) it's like it wasn't gonna have harrison ford call in to you know rap battle him (laughs) for it so but that's what happens is i think i think the fact that you are um on the on the fringes of the popularity because Mm. you're outside of the circle in the party you have to spend more time studying humanity in different ways
1: well, I think some of it also might be that many outsiders, as you put them, are just not good at social skills to begin with. They're often shy introverts. You know, they're just not good at dealing with other people. So, as an end result, they spend a lot of time thinking about other people and trying to figure out how to interact because it's almost a survival mechanism, really.
2: Well, here's a, is that a chicken and an egg situation? You're saying that they're that they're. Um... So, you know they're not outgoing to begin with but maybe they learned that right maybe maybe they weren't aggressive when they were really really young and because they weren't picked first they or they didn't re, or they didn't rebound quickly from being um rejected mm. that's made them more and more uh you know introverted as opposed to uh, were they born introverted
1: I would argue that it's a mix, like anything. I think some people are born introverted. I think there are people that are naturally shy. Mm-hmm. I can think of a few um, children that I've encountered, like really young children who are pathologically shy. And it's not mm-hmm. something that, as far as I know, that they've learned, that they're usually very happy, loving, nurturing parents. They're not being put down or anything. But I've met a fair number of super shy kids that if you look mm-hmm. at them wrong, they'll cry and run away. Um, and... I can only imagine what that is like when they become when they actually enter school and when they actually as they get up, older, so there are definitely kids that are born introverts
2: well but to be fair and i'm just i'm not, we're challenging here right of course, but my nieces uh, uh three or four of them were ridiculously shy like we thought they had something wrong with them, but mm-hmm. as they grew up, they grew out of that,
0: yeah, so that like happen my too. youngest
2: one, for example, my youngest one is extremely shy and would just like curl away, she didn't want to hug anybody in the family or anything like that now, and now she is the most tough she's like a foot and a half shorter than everybody else on her team, but she's still tough as nails, the most outgoing person the whole bit so I'm not sure, because there is, there is an element as you as you grow up of shyness, of, mm. the, they call it making strange, right? Yeah. So yeah. like every kid has to make strange at a certain age, the question is do they rebound from that? Yeah, do they, they outgrow it or that, not? Yeah. or does that become a strategy for them? Or you know like those kinds of things. And again, you're right, it probably is a mixture, but it's it's fascinating to see who does and who doesn't. Yeah,
1: that's true. Um I also keep in mind there's a fair number of people that are very high functioning autistics. So yes. some of them literally they are they're like uh, they literally are not responding to social cues. They just don't have that sense. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's a beautiful example of that. And so as an end result they're going to be shy or they're going to be outsiders and they really have no choice in the matter. In fact, to them, human behavior is a little bit alien that they're just trying to cope.
2: So are all autistic people intelligent?
1: No, definitely not. <laughs> um, some okay. are. I, okay. I've met a few autistics that were super intelligent, but I've also seen sure. ones that are definitely not. Not by. I mean, we've got that Rain Man yeah. genius thing going on in society, but that's not always true by any means. Yeah, right.
2: What was the show that he always wanted to watch? Rain Man?
0: He wanted to see Judge Wapner. It was a Wapner. game show. No, it was a People's, Court. Yeah. Yeah. People's yeah. Court. Judge the Wapner, Judge Wapner. Love Judge yeah. Wapner. Judge yeah. Wapner. Yeah. yeah, love Judge <laughs> Wapner.
2: That's right. <laughs> a little <laughs> aside there. Yep. So so you,
0: you guys have kind of hit on something mm-hmm. uh, that goes with the idea of, of intelligence and wisdom because intelligence, depending on the era... It kind of bounces back and forth being the domain of the outsider or not. Hmm. Okay. And and this goes where when, when we we're talking about nerds and where they came from and how they happened, it ties in because if you go back, like, say, immediately after World War II, mm-hmm. the idea of intelligence, and especially intelligence is expressed as science and science expressed as technology, mm-hmm. it was seen as a good thing. Like, technology got amped up from World War II we won the war through technology. That Mm -hmm. was where you had that idea. You didn't have nerds. Intellectuals were always like the two-fisted scientist type kind of guy. And it was generally portrayed as heroic. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, Like we said, it wasn't really until the fifties and the sixties, you started seeing intelligence become more the domain of the outsider. And I think it's, it's again, because society became kind of more stabilized and mm-hmm. when you, when you had the development of the youth market, when they invented teenagers, you had a lot of, especially entertainment, geared towards that audience because they had disposable income. Mm-hmm. And you started to see kind of the emotional taken up. The intellectual took a backseat because, again, teenagers are just full of raging hormones and they don't typically... Intellectualizing things was seen as, like, school stuff.
2: Don't mm-hmm. I know it. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> and then, And that's where you saw this idea of intelligence becoming an outsider thing again because it was it was was the bookworm mm-hmm. wisdom becomes the thing it's intelligence for the insider mm-hmm. and that was why you would typically see like um wisdom comes from uh like like your grandpa who's been around and he's seen a few things and he knows what's what or it mm-hmm. comes from like the street smart guy or when you get into into like the, the advent of youth culture and, say, the 60s and that, wisdom starts being associated with another stat, charisma. Because wisdom is seen as the ability to, to deal with people, to express an idea to people, to motivate people. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, you start seeing that because when you get to the 60s going into the 70s, you had a lot of social movements. And social movements are based on... More of of a collective, more of bringing people together, and more of an emotion than any kind of like intellectualization.
2: Now, wouldn't you say that? Um, mm-hmm. Sorry to throw in Don, but wouldn't you say that um, then uh, a professor would typify somebody who's intelligent, a guru might typify somebody who's
0: wise that way. You can do that. I think um, the use of t- the the terms that you you've used that role is a constant, but it changes. Yeah. Like for guru, you typically go mentor mm-hmm. that everybody has an Obi-Wan Like you, you'll see the, again, the more experienced person handing down the useful information to like the, the, the impetuous youth. Mm-hmm. Right. It and, could be motivational speech
2: speaker too, as it comes through years, you know? Yeah. It takes different forms in that way. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm, true. And it's, and it's given different credibility, because I think what you saw, again, when you get into the 80s going into the 90s, that was the era of, like, Hug a Nerd. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's, again, because uh, technology is starting to be seen as a driving force in society, and a positive one.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas when you get to the 70s, there was that kind of, like, back to nature sort of idea, getting out of the city, getting into your own head, like turning your back on the Madison Avenue, plastic, fantastic thing, man. But in the 80s, that kind of comes back. And that's why, because intellect had been shunted to the outsider, the outsider Mm -hmm. starts becoming the insider, and you get the hug a nerd thing because smart people are seen as okay. Because they're making money. Yeah, Mm. and that's part of it. But they're making money because they have the skills that society has started valuing again.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, especially when you get into like the microcomputer thing, that that's seen as the bastion of the intellect. But while we don't have the two-fisted, the two-fisted scientist hero guy, in well you sort of see a comeback like Indiana Jones, and there's a couple mm-hmm. other similar characters that they try to Doc establish. Savage. Yep. Yep. Well, that was a '70s thing. That was wasn't that like '77, '76, '77? They did the movie.
2: Yeah, but well, you're right. coming up with a new one too.
0: Yeah, yeah there's right, a new the, one coming. Yeah, yeah, but in in the early '80s, the books did come back, mm-hmm. and again, it's, so here, oh,
2: go ahead. I want to I want to bring something big on your point. And I'm asking a question because you guys would know this better than I would because because you 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 bring up uh, Don, and I think you have a a good point that there's various different sort of generations or ages that intelligence takes different forms as to what kind of value we have, whether we Mm -hmm. value the more wise person, more intelligent person, the whole bit. But that's generally North America or at least because that's what we're talking about. It's like the culture, right? Mm. So here's my question for you guys. Um, If you take a look at things like Japan, which had its blooming of various different kinds of intelligences, too. And you talked about some of those in like the science shows, like the science hero shows and stuff like that. Were those um echoes to what happened first in north america are they following their own kind of trends or it you know are they looking towards uh is is this something that's happening globally but it's coming in various different sort of like pebbles on the pond kind of thing with the echoes going outwards and it starts in one place and and moves outwards or is it totally independent based upon the culture Hmm.
1: i think that would be up for me um Asia is a bit different because of course you've got to remember they have Confucianism and Confucianism places great emphasis on the intellect and the intellectual and listening to wise people and such okay, mm-hmm. and respecting your elders and respecting wisdom and they have all these different rules about um how uh, of what skills a good man should have and what a proper man should be like and but uh, but they place a great emphasis of course on intelligence that's there. Um, And that has had huge influence on all Asian cultures. Again, East Asian cultures, of course. Mm -hmm. India is a little bit different. Um, But we're talking Vietnam, even the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Japan, doesn't matter. So we've got that. Plus, you've got that interesting situation with Asia as well. Remember in the second half of the 19th century, Asia was still relatively primitive. I mean, I don't want to throw too many stones, but they were. Japan was closed off from the world. China was kind of, like, sunk down in a funk. I mean, things were not going so well for Asia at that point. It was a low point in their history for various reasons. And then what happens is suddenly the Westerners show up with their technology and their intellectual knowledge and their much more advanced knowledge in many cases, and they basically kick all their asses, like, majorly, totally, completely, and utterly. And they force Japan to open up. They conquer China. They open Asia up. And as an end result, the Asians get a little bit of a future shock where they basically go, holy crap, the the world has advanced without us. If we don't advance, we are in deep doggy doo-doo. So mm-hmm. at that point, they freak out. The Japanese begin a mass um, focus on modernization. Um, a few other Asian countries try to as well in very, with varying degrees of success. The Chinese are kind of resistant to it, even though they really should have, but whatever. Um, but regardless, so there's this idea then that asian cultures came to revere especially they already revered wisdom already but then suddenly it literally became survival in the way of the future because you they went through this culture thing in the late in the late 19th century so as an end result um they revere intelligence they always have and they probably always will and this is just again a result of both history and experience so so they're quite different I think all cultures have revered intelligence to one degree or another, but the Asians have kind of taken it to a whole new level, which they do with many things. Mm. <laughs> um, but they're not alone. I mean, think about this. I mean, uh, the Germans have had great admiration and respect for intelligence for a very long time, uh, even when they were a whole bunch of little countries. And that they actually placed great emphasis on intelligence and learning. So, so did many European cultures and countries. I mean, you know, the Germans are not alone that way. And other cultures around the world have also placed great emphasis on learning and intelligence. Um, At one point, the Middle East was the great center of learning and intelligence as well. Sorry, I'm I'm taking us really far back into history. But I think one thing I want to bring up was just that culturally, there was actually a great value placed on intelligence throughout most of human history. Partly because, remember, they didn't have the internet. And for most of human history, they didn't even have books. So people Mm. who could come up with stuff and were creative were incredibly valued members of society. The wise, the old people that had survived and had wisdom to pass on, that was survival knowledge. That was incredibly valuable. It wasn't until we got to the 20th century where that got kind of thrown out of kilter, I'd say.
0: Yeah, I think there's a catch, too, with that um, that ties into the difference between intelligence and wisdom. That uh, there's also kind of a nostalgic effect. Mm -hmm. And that affects what we consider worth knowing. Mm. And you can see that because when you get to, uh, say, in North America, post-World War II, like immediately Mm -hmm. post-World War II, there's this vision of the future. You know, industry, technology, blah, blah. We've all seen the educational films. And the idea of um, somebody who who follows the old ways, like, say, a farmer Mm -hmm. or the the, the smaller towns and that, they become rubes. That becomes the idea that they're trapped in the past. That's true. And that kind of knowledge is no longer valued in that era. But then you go a generation up and you see it come back, Mm -hmm. um, partly because of nostalgia. Because, again, everybody's, you know, I remember the good old days when you could sit in your porch drinking your lemonade and times were easier and simpler. And we knew where you stood then. And what you get is that kind of old timey homespun intelligence comes back and is labeled as wisdom. And mm. that that makes it acceptable again. Mm. Ooh, this
2: this brings another question. Then, mm. so does intelligence the the effective use of intelligence in a society and or wisdom because one can argue, you know, one is one is larger than another or more emphasized than another in in certain times. Is that reliant upon myth?
0: I think it might be partly, and it might again be practicality because. Uh, going back to the idea of, say, uh, Japan, Japan's always been a weird country because while they've almost always strived to hyper modernize, they always hang on to the old, old, way old, like cultural ideals and roots. And you get this weird mix, whereas in the West, we kind of tend to vacillate mm-hmm. and, and part of the problem that you get with, with say that question of, of, does it depend on myth? is how we define intelligence and what we we value it tends to focus on results. Mm. And results tend to be practical, but then they also have kind of I guess like a whimsical mythological aspect to them as well. Mm.
2: It's funny though because it's funny because we talk the the, the <laughs> application of intelligence as wisdom, but wisdom itself may not be practical. Mm-hmm. wisdom itself you know like if you take a look at some of the great things like uh, rob was bringing up confucius but there's there's Tzu, and there's there's a mm-hmm. ton of others that came at the ex- almost the exact same time as this explosion of wisdom traditions mm-hmm. that that may you know they don't help you uh really uh sow the the fields they don't mm-hmm. really help you harvest rice You know, those are really intelligent things that you need to do, but they do help you live your life more fully. And that's Mm. not a practical aspect as well. And when I want to go back to the whole myth idea, because a lot of people forget that so much of the American um, go get it kind of attitude, that's part of mythology that was developed in the 19th century. This sort of new Adam idea that came from the existentialists, you know, Mm. uh, the Ralph Waldo Emerson's and the Walt Whitman's of this. You you can leave everything that you were behind and spring anew in, in America and make anything that you want of yourself. And then mm. it was this sort of, we will always progress forward, which continued moving into the 50s, which got them onto the moon, right? This idea that the can-do effort of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that myth starts to break down and maybe 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 that myth breaks down in the face of consumerism and modern day, uh, you know, we could sell you anything. Therefore, the ideologies that we have developed, the myths that we developed before have lost their flavor Mm. in that respect.
0: It could be because we get new myths. And again, I think it ties into that, that you might hit upon the idea, too, that wisdom helps ground you because I'm thinking you've got like the uh, the post-war go get them, vision vision-of-the-future kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And going into, like, the 60s, you see a brand-new myth emerge that becomes commonplace, especially in, in America, and that would be Andy Griffith. It... <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, yep. And if if Ross is listening, I sincerely apologize for that. <laughs> but but yeah, you have this idea that, if you remember, like, the Andy Griffith show... He mm-hmm. was just this common, down-to-earth, old-timey, old-fashioned, not hurried, not up with, like, you know, the modern headaches kind of guy. And yet, him, that character, would come back, and you would constantly see that character frustrate, like, the uh, the opponents that represented the modern era, the modern fixation, mm-hmm. the drive for technology and that. And that became... Uh-
2: Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Another yeah. good example. Or will uh, will is it Will Rogers, the the yep. philosopher guy who you know used his his lasso and and talked a whole bunch of you know homespun stuff. That yep, same that's Will Rogers. Guy. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And Sorry, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> oh no, but but that's it. And I think that that's this idea that that became one of the new myths. Pe- and even though people didn't didn't know it, and it's sort of. It, like I say, I think it kind of it grounds you and it gives you an out because part of the problem, and one of the reasons why I think um, you see these weird anti-intellectual bends pop up in North America so often is being smart takes some effort, Mm -hmm. and it can get overwhelming at times, especially if it's not if what's considered smart is something you're not really integrated into. Right. Um, Like, if you go back to the 80s, at the beginning of the Hug a Nerd thing, you had the microcomputing thing. Mm -hmm. And most people didn't really understand it. They had a vague awareness of computers. Um, By the middle of the decade, going into the end, you had people buying home computers, but they were basically using them as, like, word processors and really expensive calculators to do, like, their taxes and stuff. Pretty much, yeah. Mm. But the idea of the person who could manipulate the computer and actually do things like that was still this weird, almost shamanistic figure. And I think yes, it again, was, yeah. Yeah. And that's where you get like, say movies like Tron, mm. the original Tron comes out and people like watch it. And yeah, it's about magic glowing elves that make your computer work. And everybody digs that and makes perfect sense. And then hmm. in like the 2000 and teens, when you remake it, it doesn't really go over because Everybody now knows how a computer works. So the idea of magical elves living inside of it that make it run, it's way too fantastical. It's not, it it's like, like Chad said, when you see there in, in a nightclub, is that an iPod? Like what is that? We can relate the computer to things now. Like we know how it works. Mm-hmm. So how does that, that work? What is that? Right. Actually, it's I
2: like, would, wanted... it's like reboot too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Reboot's a continuation of that really. yeah. 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 Um, actually, I want to take things a step further in, your, in what you were talking about, Don. Okay, mm-hmm. let's talk about thinking fast and slow. Okay, all right. So um, I don't know, Jack. Have you read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman?
2: No, but I, I, I did. I did. Did you? Is it sim- similar to um, what they were talking about at Mysterious Universe with the book called like Rabbit Brain, Tortoise Brain?
1: It's probably exactly the same thing, Um, except Daniel Daniel Kahneman Kahneman Kahneman, I think it's Kahneman actually is kind of he's the one who did the actual research that's probably based on, and he wrote his own book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, The short version is this: Um, back in I believe it was the 1960s, although Don can correct me on that. Daniel Kahneman and his fellow researchers accidentally discovered something, which is that uh, our pupils dilate depending on how much brain power we're using. So your eyes are literally, uh, effort meters. They Mm. literally will show how much effort you're putting into something. And you can literally see from the second it starts to the second it finishes, how much effort your brain is putting into something based on your pupils and how they dilate. Hmm. All right. So they discovered that. And so they thought, okay, well, let's use this to start exploring different aspects of, uh, of human psychology. And what they discovered is, and this, again, Kahneman points out, this is a huge simplification. Okay, this is, and this goes back to what you were just saying about tortoise brain, um, rabbit brain. Although what they refer to it as system one and system two because they're science nerds and, you know, that's what they like <laughs> calling things. Um, nerds. Anyway, so the key <laughs> point is this. System one is your basic intuitive system. It's your everyday average operating normal level of function basically it's how your brain normally functions okay it's a normal level of effort that you put in it's very comfortable it's very low level and it's more it's more based on things like intuition and gut feelings and it's just you know how you how you remember to breathe and everything else okay (laughs) and that's when
2: when that leaf rushes in front of your face the fact that your hand comes up to protect yourself whether it really needs protecting or not it's part of that intuitive. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, exactly. Decision. That's system yeah. one.
1: Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And then this contrasts with system two, which is basically when you're putting your effort into something. This is the things that require actual measured uh, effort, thoughtful, effortful thought, as he puts it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to see someone go from system one to system two, he has a great example in his book. He has a bunch of them, but this is the one that's always stuck with me. Is okay. So if you're walking with someone, okay, ask them a complicated question like ask what's 234 times 562 or something like that, okay? They will immediately stop walking. That's the first thing that they will do. And uh. why? It's because their system too is just kicked in. It's attempting to solve the problem and it's basically using all the brain's processing power and so they can't even walk at that point. Mm. <laughs> it's literally using that much effort. All mm. right, so... And so this is the whole system 1 system 2 thing. Um, and I've tried it. It actually does work. It actually really it really will work. It's a it's a fun party game you can play.
2: You know uh, what's interesting with the, the the rabbit brain tortoise brain though, is they have a third one. That's what the book okay. is about. It's the third interesting. one. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So w- w- they talk about, you know, like the intuitive one, then they talk I think the I forget what they call it. It's like alpha brain or something they call it for that. And that's the one where it takes a lot of thought product. And they said what's really fascinating, and they have a lot of studies based on this, Mm -hmm. is that there's a third way of of knowing, which is letting it go and letting your brain come up with the answer by not thinking on it. Right. And you can actually be more successful not thinking at all and have something. So it's like that, that time when you have a problem, you go to sleep and you wake up and you have the answer. Or you're singing in the shower, and you're like, "Oh, yes, that's it." Or yeah, you put yeah. stuff together that you didn't put together for. So it's really frustrating because it actually means the less you know, sometimes the better it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> so.
1: not always, because um, no, is where, sometimes, yeah, some,
2: sometimes. Okay, so yeah. and
1: I, I, I could see that actually. There's a kind of back, back end processing that's going on as well. Because again, mm-hmm. he's mostly referring to conscious thought, you know, and mostly right. conscious thought, whereas. What you're talking about is basically the unconscious part of the brain, which, of course, is most of it, really. Um, sure. But anyway, but the point is, and this is how it relates to what we're talking about is, so one of the things they've discovered is by, by measuring this is, they discovered a couple of things. First, people hate using system two. Human beings are really, <laughs> really lazy. So we mm-hmm. will do everything in our power to avoid using system two whenever possible. Okay, so we love making gut, you know, gut feelings or gut choices and things like that. Why? Because it means we don't have to put any effort into it. Human mm-hmm. beings are just astoundingly lazy creatures. We basically exist in system one, and we do our My best gut to avoid instinct using is system to trust two. Trust you on that. Okay. Yep. There we go. Your system <laughs> one is a wise system one, Jack. <laughs> um, and but the other thing that they've discovered, of course, is that our brains are like muscles. Okay, so you can actually make your system one stronger and more capable of a variety of thought, over t- by you know reading and using your brain etc and of course your system two can actually become stronger as well in fact the more you use it the stronger it gets mm-hmm. but conversely the less you use it the weaker it gets
3: mm-hmm. so
1: so what you'll get is you'll get people that literally for them to try to use system two is almost painful
2: Mm. It literally
1: is a kind of mental pain to have to try to use their system two to use their advanced processes, so they avoid it. So Homer
2: Simpson is what you're saying?
1: Yes, exactly.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I got to use my brain again.
0: That's that's Um, that's my second. Brain. I
2: I don't like you, and you don't like me. So let's get through this, so I can start killing you with beer.
0: Agreed.
3: Agreed.
2: (laughs) That's system one and
1: system two in action. There we go. There they are. There they are, right there, working together as a team.
2: Uh, that's cool
1: and but so one of the things that i've noticed this is my own observation not condiments is again we we love not using system two okay and in a way weird way we actually celebrate it think about Mm -hmm. this we tend to celebrate in our pop culture people who make the right gut choices and everything oh i'm following my gut i'm do i'm you know i'm doing what comes naturally that kind of thing that's all Mm -hmm. system one stuff
2: yeah so donald trump
1: yeah pretty much yeah Donald Trump, George <laughs> yeah. W. Bush. Um, oh, actually, I come with but,
2: my gut. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but not just yeah. him. I mean, every '80s action character. Yeah. Sure. Well, most characters on cop shows. Uh, most most cowboys. Yeah. Hell, and,
0: most detectives. Oh,
1: that's true. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes is actually almost weird that way, where he actually yeah. is someone who uses his brain as opposed to
0: just going with his gut feeling that tells him to go in the right direction. Yeah, but mm-hmm. you gotta re- you gotta remember this ties in with what we we started with mm. if you look at say the new sherlock Holmes, like any version of them yeah he's portrayed as a weirdo yes mm-hmm. he is yeah and and well, i that's... think
2: sorry oh, go, ahead. go ahead i was going to say though i think the fact that the heroes tend to use system 1 mm. th- the villains tend to use system 2 because if you think about it the, the 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 ones that are the the villains tend to be english and or evil uh, geniuses, mm-hmm. and <laughs> usually both, right? So, but think about like James Moriarty. We were talking about Sherlock Holmes. Um, totally a system, two person. He's so mm-hmm. meticulous in all his planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Green Goblin, Norman Ob- uh, Osborn, uh, Cersei Lannister, Hannibal Lecter, Lex Luthor, might... Lex yeah. Luthor, uh, the Duns from Gone Girl, Nick and Amy, uh, Griffin from The Invisible Man. Um, mm. All of those people, you know, they they tend they tend to really plot and plan, and maybe we're afraid of that. We're afraid of the people who are so good at system two that they're fooling us.
1: Yeah, well, because we are afraid of the people that are smarter than us. There's a natural fear there, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of pop culture plays on that. That's one yeah. of the reasons why every superhero, if you think about it, their main villain is always a smart guy. Yes. Yeah. Usually, yeah. there now there are a couple different i think practical reasons for that one is they're a smart guy because that way they can come up with cool and interesting plots that the hero then has to undo right you know so so there's some of that some of it's just it's a requirement for the job i mean if they're not then they're just an unthinking brute who's destroying stuff and those characters exist too but they don't make good arch villains
3: Mm -hmm.
2: but they tend to be smart guys without powers too
1: Yes, that's right? their main so power. So,
2: like, like Lex Luthor, his power is his intelligence. He comes up with technology for that. Same with Joker, right? His mm-hmm. evil intelligence is what makes him do stuff. It's not like he has Mister, you know, Mister uh, Cold or Captain Cold's or ability. Right. Um, yeah. right. So it it, it is those inte- well to Mr. be fair, Freeze. Uh, v- Mr. Freeze. But there's a Captain Cold. That's from yeah. For, that's for the Flash's
1: villain. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, but you're right. Mr. Freeze is intelligent too, but he's, he's and he's coldly intelligent in that respect. But yep. it's it's more innate in that respect because he's a tragic character, mm. right? Yeah. In that respect, so it's slightly different in that way. But I I, I think it's interesting because if you contrast that with like sliders, remember that episode Eggheads. I didn't
1: watch Sliders, so I can't really say. Okay.
2: It's mm. the very first season. like it, it goes really off the rails quickly. I tried to watch it on Netflix because I thought, I've got to see the entire series of ne- Sliders. Um. And about <laughs> two seasons in, I was like, I've got to stop this. Well, I still can. <laughs> and I did. I, it was one of my greatest accomplishments. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> in, in one of the Sliders episodes, you know the theory. like they They I know, go yeah. from parallel world to parallel world. Yeah. They actually go to a world uh, where intelligence takes precedence over athletics, mm-hmm. and so all all the great like sports heroes are play this sport called mind game, where they're all dressed up as if they're ready to do sports stuff, but they're actually it takes a lot of intelligence to do it. So all the all the commercials, all all, all the all the sports people get all the money uh, from various different companies because of how intelligent they are, mm. and uh, so it's it's and it just sort of highlights. You know, what we value in Stec, we value system one, where we want that person to make snap decisions on the court, be able to be a leader, be able to instantaneously know what needs to be done as opposed yeah. to really reasoning it out and coming up with the best way. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we're so afraid of our robot overlords. The possibly. Man. By the, <laughs> way, the way, the
1: society you just described, that's called South Korea. Oh, wow.
2: Ah.
1: <laughs> South, Korea, South Korea is where, you know, where they have e-athletes, for example. And uh, intellectual pursuits are highly valued in Korean society. That's everyone has to be master playing go and chess and piano. How long has that been? That's been for a little while. Uh, Korea, like Japan, is a resource poor country. So their only resource is their people. Gotcha. So as an end result, that's where they put their emphasis because there was a certain point where manufacturing wasn't going to get them anywhere. So they're like, well, we need to encourage the next generation to be much smarter so they can figure out a way to solve this problem. Right. Now, Korean culture has always valued intelligence, but there's in the last maybe 30, 40 years, there's definitely been a huge push for it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, you know the, the wars of the mid-20th century kind of weeded the population out a little bit, so that was a bit of an issue. And in China, remember, during the Cultural Revolutions, they burned all the intellectuals. Or, correction, they sent them to labor camps where they <laughs> basically worked them to death. They didn't burn yeah. them. I apologize. That was—I'm trying to remember which country that was. I think that that was a few— yeah, there's been a few where they've done that, but you know, burn the witch. Anyway, yeah, basically, uh, yeah. Um, so, but we've always, yeah, had that idea. But, but but that goes back to what I was saying, where the Asians, for many reasons, value intelligence on a cultural level that we don't, and uh, that's something I've always loved about Asian culture. They have, it has its downsides, but one of the, one of my beloved parts of that about Asian culture is that they mm-hmm. they're great about for intelligence. Yeah, so so there we go. So there's South Korea. There's your culture where they literally do have what we would call you know gamer nerds. They have them actually doing commercials for products on the air and everything like that.
2: Okay, so here's my question for you. Mm-hmm. So if, if, in South Korean culture and, and their their media, mm-hmm. um, do they are their super villains really really smart, just like everybody else, yes. or is are the heroes equally as smart? Yes. Um. Are, are, so there. So it's system two versus system two.
1: Usually, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the hero will be a little here, and this is something we can get into. There will be a little more balance. So the hero will be smart. But the hero will usually also have some other smart people backing them up. And so they'll usually win because they're all putting their brains together versus the villain who is evil and selfish and is just doing it. You know, they're, they're basically the one really smart person versus a group of other people that are maybe not quite as smart but are working together as a team. That's what you'll see in Asian stuff usually. Because they do still worry that if they make their hero too smart, a he's really he or she will be really hard to write, and mm-hmm. b he or she will also kind of alienate the audience a little bit because you know for all I'm saying about a- Asians valuing smarts, there are still tons of stupid people in Asia, okay <laughs> the audience you know most people everywhere in the world, including Asia, still run on system one they really don't want to use their System 2 any more than they have to.
2: Well, it, here's, here's a question then. Is it an evolutionary tra- uh, trait to run very well on System 1 because it, it takes less effort?
1: It probably is, actually. People who are better with System 1 probably do actually do better in life.
0: Well, I, th- I think, though, what you're seeing, and this ties in with, with, uh, with, say, South Korea, is, again, environment effects because we live in an environment because of technology and where it's at and how quickly it develops, intellect is valued. Intellect is useful. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because you see here in North America, we keep trying to make that switch because you're always hearing people talking about, we must train the kids for the high-tech jobs of the future. And Future,
2: future. Yeah.
0: It it sounds a lot (laughs) like that old 50s rhetoric, but we can never quite get any traction on it because we don't really know what that means. And there's kind of this weird undercurrent that for a while we really didn't value um intellect overall. Hmm. So you kind of start seeing like say politicians will talk about we have to get the kids ready for the future, they need high tech skills, they need education, they need intellectual agility, so we're going to cut the educational budget in half and uh-huh. then Use that as a tax cut for the pharmaceuticals and to buy more tanks. Well, okay, your your you're, your heart might be in the right place, but you're not. We don't know how to do things that would actually exemplar intellect, and and I think this is one of the reasons why you'll see, um, like right now when we're recording, there's the whole big thing going on about Facebook, mm-hmm. about them. Jack and your info and selling it, and we've heard about this before. And we know about the dark web, where people steal your identity like an alien in a '50s horror movie. And that kind of keeps feeding in this weird undercurrent that we value technology, but we're still terrified of it. Mm-hmm. And it again undercuts us making that shift to a more positive view of of intellect. Like uh, going back to what we were we were taught about with like Sherlock Holmes and that. Mm. the The intelligent person is still seen as an oddity, and I think again that's why, um, like we were, uh, Jack had brought up way at the beginning of this, mm-hmm. the idea that certain things, like say autism, are typically portrayed as magic, mm. like an autistic person doesn't have a problem. They mm-hmm. have some magical gift that lets them see the world differently, and then they can be a teenage doctor or, like, a theoretical particle physicist and that. And the downside just becomes, like, you know, interesting personality quirks. Right. It's interesting, actually, you brought that up, because there's a show called The Good Doctor
1: on right now about this autistic, super genius doctor kid. Yep. Who's, like, a teenager, which is just Doogie Hauser, except Doogie Hauser wasn't autistic. He was just a genius.
0: Yeah, and if you think back to say Doogie Hauser and the the progenitor of, of Doogie Hauser and his ilk from that era would be Ferris Bueller, mm. like Doogie was still portrayed as a wacky, semi, hip, just nerdy enough to to be entertaining kind of teenager. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, and and again, the intellectual parts of that show kind of kind of got backpedaled because they would do things like. Uh oh, he stayed out late and mom and dad grounded him and you're like, He does open heart surgery! Why doesn't he have power of attorney? <laughs> like and and again it's because they were kind of just splitting the difference. The 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 it's the the wacky teen show with the interesting twist that he's this super genius doctor, but he still can't talk to a girl and can't figure out how to drive. Because again, it's that weird, magical, mental thing that mm. he can be intellectual, he's a brilliant doctor, um, but there's still that downside. He still lacks wisdom. He doesn't know the real things, the down-to-earth kind of things. Mm. Which makes the audience feel good about themselves because they know about that stuff, but he doesn't. So it's all yeah.
2: it's all okay. Yeah. while E. Hauser, super genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's funny that you're talking about Sherlock Holmes, because when I think about the Sherlock Holmes that's shown in the British series, mm-hmm. he is a mixture of System 1 and 2. Yeah. Because he instinctively sees things that he almost can't process, and things come out of it, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. you'll, you'll see him pick things up off the wall, and his brain is putting it together instantaneously, and he's like, whoa, oh, cool. But it's it's that instinct that something is wrong, and he's still figuring out why it's wrong. Mm-hmm. not that he's learned something that's necessarily that that's going to you know uh fix him out of he's not macgyver yeah right you know he's taking stuff that is uh that that is is totally not connected to anything else mm-hmm. and and putting it together instantly through instinct and learning mm-hmm. it's yeah. very weird so
0: well there's there's a catch to that too cuz what you were talking about um the 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 type three way of thinking that that the, the one book there has. Mm-hmm. That ties in with something that, say, me and Rob talked about decades ago. And it's why, say, most comic books and role-playing games and movies really suck. And it's that idea that I've always said if you want to be like any kind of an artist or writer or that, you have to put in the work on learning theory. Mm-hmm. You yeah. have to mm-hmm. learn, okay, not just what works. Don't just read Save the Cat and then Mouth typewriter fart out whatever you know the formula he used in that book was Mm -hmm. you want that idea you want a lot of that um theory in your head same thing too we talked a long time ago if you want to write science fiction stop reading science fiction because all that shit's already in your head you put more things in there because your subconscious brain will still parse through problems in that and if you've got more of these things more of this theory more of these templates wigging around in your head your subconscious can draw more of that into the uh into into dealing with the problem
2: right and i find
0: that's one of the things that for a long time um society doesn't value because society wants it doesn't want intellectuals and creative types it wants people who can fix your computer and your car so there tends to be this focus on specialization hmm. that's I, true i find especially in entertainment like that's one of the reasons why Um, If you read a modern superhero comic, most of them are really boring because the people writing them are the people that grew up reading superhero comics in the 90s and the superhero comics of the 90s were written by the people who grew up reading the superhero comics from the 80s. Nobody's added anything to that formula or those ideas for a very, very long time. So you're basically just getting weird stripped-down regurgitations. Yeah, that's problem sorry you brought
2: up you brought up comics so I want to bring up something that I was thinking about while you guys were talking about this because we want to go back I'm going backwards to the idea of intelligence versus wisdom Mm -hmm. and I would argue Batman is intelligent Superman may be considered intelligent and wise at the same time Mm -hmm. but it's his wisdom that people respect more but it's Mm -hmm. also the same thing that makes him a putz and it's the same thing that Captain that Captain America has, right? Captain America has wisdom more than you know, like he has. Sure, you can say he's got a kind of like combat intelligence, but he's not like a super smart guy. Mm-hmm. It's it's really it's really his his understanding of humanity that people love so much, right? And again, mm-hmm. it's what makes him a putz, right? So <laughs> it, maybe there's a certain element that happens uh, in 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 comics that if you're the kind of person that appreciates wisdom and gurus and that kind of thing there comes with a kind of anti-baggage against that in the same level that if you're somebody who really loves intelligent people there's an anti-intelligence backlash as well that's happening in society as too yeah. it's just different tribes right that are fighting for dominance
0: well i think you've hit upon a couple things there too that um because when when I was originally making my notes for this, uh, I added a third part of the the D and d cosmology. I added charisma mm-hmm. because what you're getting at, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's been so difficult for anybody to do a Superman movie that really takes off with with the audience mm-hmm. that you're right that Superman is more he's wisdom, he's understanding he's mm. he's warmth like that's what yeah, he's, he's like, supposed to be. I've always pictured that Superman proper. He's supposed to be like your good-natured big brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he looks out for you. He he cares about you. He's he's more like worldly than you are. He can do more than you can, but he never holds that against you, kind of thing. Mm. And I think that's tough to write because again, intellect is sort of um, it's seen as weird. It's mm-hmm. seen as like the outsider. That's why like. Batman is intellect, and that's why he's this cold, sociopathic kind of guy. And especially in the movies, he's not the nineteen fifties fun-loving Batman that you'd see hanging out with Robin in inappropriate ways in the cover of the uh, comics. He's like the 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 Dark Knight guy because yeah. But I would actually make the argument,
1: and I know where this is going to go with Jack. I would make the argument that the Batman that we've seen in the movies, especially the Dark Knight trilogy, and that isn't an intellectual at all he's actually just a brute force character he really has no subtlety no intellect he just kind of brute forces his way through everything
2: no you're absolutely right he's not the great the world's greatest detective no yeah. but he's, he's which still... is what they used to, to call him as they used to call in, right? in
1: fact almost no batman in the film live action film has ever been the world's greatest detective they always just I'll, turn him into I'll... an action hero
2: I'll, I'll I'll challenge you with only one film and we'll all laugh at this, but it's probably the closest one to the comics of him as the world's greatest detective, and that's the Batman movie from the 1960s. Cuz he actually figures stuff out.
1: Right. You know? yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like Isn't that ridiculous when you yeah. think about it? <laughs> it he happens Batman to be of the, all. the the yeah. smartest Batman of all is is uh, you know, Adam West. Yeah,
1: that's Because he's the only one who's actually functioning as a detective. The other guys are all just, like, a psycho guy in a costume who beats up mentally ill people.
2: Yeah, like, exactly. They're they're figuring out all the clues left by the Riddler. They're coming up with shark repellent. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Trying to find a place to dispose of a bomb.
2: That's right. All those things.
1: (laughs) Yep. Whereas, for some reason, they feel obligated to dumb down Batman. and. Mm -hmm. I guess well, again that's partly to appeal to a mass audience. I think that the mass audience doesn't want heroes that are that much
0: smarter than them, or that they they can't follow. Yeah, but um, there's the, there's a catch because mm-hmm. they they still dress it up like he's supposed to be a smart guy. No, mm-hmm. they always pretend they are, but they never really are.
2: Yeah, but I, I, th- I think I think it's different than that, though, Rob. I think it's I think people look at System One specialists mm-hmm. and see them as mystical and right. see them as greater than because. They're not using book smarts. They have some sort of inherent powers that right. none of us could get, and that's what makes them alpha men. That's mm-hmm. what makes mm-hmm. them so great to be leaders is because they don't have to go back and look up something before they make a decision that will save all our lives.
1: They just know it automatically. They don't have to so use it. They just know automatically, right?
0: So it's almost
2: too. mystical thinking that way.
0: Hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And there's also another big problem when you talk about entertainment is that the smartest character in a story can only be as smart as the person writing the story. There it is. There's the biggest problem, which
1: is why it's very rare that you'll get very smart characters in media because the truth is, while scriptwriters are usually smart people, they're usually not smart in the same way the character is supposed to be smart.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And let's be honest. Is like for somebody like me who like my favorite kinds of mysteries are you know the ones that are like the really the really interesting whodunits which require a lot of clues that you mm-hmm. could put together if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Those are really hard to write. Yeah, yeah. yeah like they are. To, to write well to get to a point that you actually fool most of the audience until the end, and then they look back and go, "Why didn't I see this at the beginning?" That's mm. like so hard to do. Yeah. Yep. It is.
0: I think I've only ever really seen one story where the characters were supposed to be really intelligent and they actually acted really intelligent, and Which that was, was? De- Death Note.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, Death Note. They do, I- yeah.
2: I thought you were going to say Michael Caine without a clue. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, actually, when when you talk about this kind of thing, I always think of the old uh, Tiny Toons when they did their Sherlock Holmes parody. because there's a scene in that that any kind of investigative show has and it was the one, wait, a clue it's Lint Lint rhymes with squint, which is what you do in a Clint Eastwood movie, which means they're at the museum yeah
1: yeah, Uh, yeah, that's Peter? how it goes
0: Peter
2: Sellers being there (laughs) (laughs) there's a perfect example of somebody who is an ultimate system one person right (laughs) because there is no intelligence there and yet he walks on water in the end Mm -hmm. he's jesus right right (laughs) can you think of anybody who's better at system one than peter seller's character um Hmm. i forget what his name was chauncey chauncey gardner okay (laughs) i'm trying to think there do you ever see uh... that movie no
1: I haven't actually seen it. No, sorry. Oh,
2: you have to watch the movie. It's one of my father's favorites. My father really likes comedy that's understated, mm. and uh, and it is Peter Sellers. And what happens is is that uh, Peter Sellers plays this sort of very slow gardener mm-hmm. by naming Chance the gardener, and the guy who paid for his life, his uh, the person who was really wealthy that that gave him a job, mm-hmm. uh, really liked him, but dies. And so when he dies, he leaves him, you know, stuff for so he has enough money. And people start noticing him, and the and the simple things he says sound brilliant. Mm-hmm. So they decide that he's going to be like their next political find. Right, right. You know, and so they'll say, you know, what? What should we do with the Chinese problem? And and his answers always have to, you know, well, you must prune where you're needed to prune. You know, like, right. <laughs> so, oh, so what you're saying is non-interference is the best way to deal with the China problem. Only prune it if you have to, right? You know, like, and he's talking about gardening. So right, yeah, and, and yeah, you have to. Why it's very cleverly done. So
1: wow, okay. It's called, it's good Shirley McLean
2: isn't. It's called hmm. being there. Shirley McLean and Peter Sellers, and uh, 1979 it came out. I've heard mm. of a, it. I've just never seen it. It's a it. Hal Ashby movie, yeah. Oh, okay. So.
1: <laughs> I will put it in the show notes, or at least an IMDb link, obviously. And, uh, it's I'll even see, got I'll Jack Warden it in it.
2: I love Jack Warden as an actor. He's so much fun. So. Mm.
3: Anyway.
2: It's not because
1: he has almost the same name as you? <laughs> no,
2: it's not that. It's because he was in a Twilight Zone, let's be honest. <laughs>
3: okay,
1: well, <laughs> there we go. No, that'll do it but yeah going back to don's point though yeah i mean you can only write as smart as you actually are Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that's a big problem because many especially screenwriters i've noticed are tend to be jacks of all trades which means they're good at kind of faking almost everything but they're not actually that great in any one area or any one thing Mm -hmm. and so they can so so they do all sorts of cheats and tricks to, to say they'll say the characters are smart but they're really not that smart because the person writing them isn't either
2: well, um
1: it's, and it's... unless
2: they're the the grissoms of the world and they're just they're just uh you know lawyers that will write law books wow oh, that's, they that's different right?
1: yeah. though i i specifically said screenwriters because mm-hmm. what you'll get is where you write it where you're getting people who quote unquote write what they know as the famous writer advice goes So you'll get Mm -hmm. John Grisham, you'll get Michael Crichton, you'll get people who are literally their hyper-specialist in one area, and so their stuff is really intelligent. Dan Brown, um, Mm -hmm. their stuff is just filled with book smarts, and sometimes even wisdom, in fact. Um, Mm -hmm. Another one that is, oh, is the guy who does Jack Reacher? I'm trying to remember, the Jack Reacher books, which are Lee Child. Um, are also for what they're for what they are are really well written and really intelligent. Luther is an incredibly intelligent character he 's right. far more intelligent mm. than most of the readers are um, yes that 's true and so and that's but that 's the point is is that so you'll get novelists can show that kind of intelligence, but as soon as you try to bring it to a mass audience you 've got to filter it through the screenwriter, and mm. you 've also got a whole Hollywood machine that is basically oriented towards dumbing it down because they 're looking for the lowest common denominator. Cause they don't want to alienate the
0: audience. Yeah. Well, there's, there's the problem too, that um, I think screenwriting is one, but there's a lot of different things that in the last say 30 years, mm-hmm. these things have become careers and there's bodies of thought and there's schools and there's places where you learn the, and I'm doing the air quote thing right way of doing whatever it is you produce. Mm-hmm. And as I've always said, I've always felt that was a bad idea because everything starts looking the same because everybody's drawing from that same template of how to do it. And especially if you get uh, screenwriting, like again, save the cat drives me nuts because people just start following that. It, it becomes the template. If you don't follow it, then you're considered, it's considered not good even by the audience. Cause the audience get used to that timing.
2: Mm. You get
0: stuck. You can't really do anything different you get people that are moving into this job as a job. So, mm-hmm. like I said, the comic book thing is one of the obvious ones. Uh, because, again, these were people that their goal was to do comic books and to do comic books like the ones they enjoyed, which is cool. But if you are strictly a comic book guy, you're not bringing anything new to the mix. Mm. Yeah.
1: You don't have any life experience. You don't have any wisdom. but Which is not or always pers- true. Some comic book guys do actually have bring in life experience or bring in other things. But if you start when you're in your 20s, yeah, that's where we run into a problem. Because you don't have a lot to offer usually at that point.
0: Well, not it, new. You you can, but again, it, it is that idea that you're not getting a lot of different perspectives. Because what's happening, it's like um, comic books being done by the last generation of fan. Um, people writing screenplays after going to like screenwriting school. They're drawing mm. from the same well, and it starts to look really obvious that they're drawing from the same well at a point because again, nobody like yeah nobody's done anything different enough to add to that mix. You're not getting any kind of new flavoring. You're getting refinements of the old stuff. You're getting things done better, but they're still just the same things. Right. Here's, Although, here's a, I'm sorry, go Jack.
2: I was just gonna, here's a question that's sort of ten gentle of, of this because I'm, I'm wondering um if if really smart um characters that they create in kids shows mm-hmm. are they designed to are they designed to um inspire more intelligence from our youth or are they seen as uh, anomalies and weird like if you think of things like uh jimmy neutron or Mm -hmm. mr peabody or meet the robinsons or you know all those ones which are supposed to be like super intelligent people is it just kitschy that they make them super intelligent or is that some sort of attempt to try to embolden society to make to make the next generation find intelligence cool system two stuff
0: uh, it's tricky because again it it depends usually the intellectual again is is like the weirdo and mm. and it's that idea of coming to terms with their weirdosity which I guess is a is, is a fine message if like you're a smart guy struggling with it, but to a lot of the people watching and I think this applies to like grown up stuff as well they're not going to see themselves as like the intellectual person they're kinda they might associate sort of with them but it's going to be the secondary character that's usually the the cool guy that is the one that's going to be there in that's going to be kind of their identifier character because they're going to look at the other the other characters through that lens and that's how they're going to be portrayed
1: i mean it does depend though i mean for example Going back to our favorite Star Trek, the original series, and that one could argue that Spock was actually far more popular than Kirk was. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, but he was a product of the '60s when there was some, uh, pot, you know, when we were putting men on the moon and everything, right? So there was mm-hmm. that. There was some pro-intellectual movement going on at that point. That's true. Um, the smart characters and stories. Ah, um, I think we as a society want to encourage people especially we as a society, sorry, let me start again. We as a society want to encourage young people to become smart. We want to encourage education. We consider that a good value in society. Mm -hmm. But I think this is something I've been thinking about, actually, through this whole conversation is I think part of the problem also is balance. And here's what Mm -hmm. I mean is that we like people to be smart and we want people to be smart and well-educated. But there's such a thing as being too smart and too well-educated. Just mm-hmm. the, and, and I think we look down on that as a, a society. We look down on unbalanced people. And the same way we look down on an athlete that's just a true meathead that literally only has their physicality and nothing else. We do. Maybe American society, I know, American society probably <laughs> celebrates that a little more than they should, but I think there's still that idea of the dumb jock is still in society, which is considered a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. To a point, anyway. Um, in the United States, it maybe isn't as much as it should be, but whatever. And then I would argue that the nerd is their counterpart. The idea of that someone who is too smart in some ways or too much in their own head—that's actually also considered a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe in American society, worse than it really should be. But whatever depends on the, again North American society versus other countries. Um, but again, mm-hmm. we do want people who are balanced. We do want people who are you know up smart but maybe not too smart, or annual, but also somewhat charismatic. They can talk to people. They're also involved in athletics. It kind of goes back to the whole, actually, ironically enough, the whole Doc Savage idea of someone who's the whole package. Um, we actually do, believe it or not, value that the most, someone who is well-rounded and is capable in all different areas, even mm. if they might not be 100% master of all those areas, but they're really good in all, in all those areas. I think we value that. And most of our heroes, at least our traditional heroes, are those kinds of characters. I mean, just look at the even the Marvel movies that people are you know crazy about, which again are Marvel superheroes, but they're all of that ilk like they're all characters mm. that are basically for the most part fairly well rounded in one form or another they're all smart, but they're also all physically able they're also you know somewhat charismatic. they have their issues, but for the mm. most part they're all Renaissance men of one kind or another who are actually kind of. Ideal humans, because that is kind of our ideal that we're still working towards, or that we lean
0: towards anyway. Well, maybe I, th- I think again it 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 fluctuates. Mm-hmm. That to a certain degree, at the moment, I think we're in a in like a hug a nerd phase. Okay, and that was that was because like we said way before on 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 our nerd podcast, there really aren't nerds anymore. It's it's being intelligent, being like dedicated to to some some ideal or some some hobby or or some interest it's not really seen as a, a negative thing hmm. but i think it's cyclical i think you might start seeing um especially because now people are getting afraid of the internet and they're terrified of facebook kind of thing you might see it go the other way i disagree and i'm going to tell you why i don't think it can go the other way at
1: least not okay. in north american society and here's why um well okay it Okay, here, I'll go. I'll explain my first idea first. Okay, so I don't think it's going to go the other way because we're about to engage in a huge wave of automation of one kind right. or another. And as a result of that automation that's coming in the next you know, 10 to 20 years, the, there's going to be even more competition in society for a much smaller number of jobs. And the mm-hmm. jobs that do exist are going to be highly specialized and require a lot of intelligence to be successful at. In right. fact the people who are going to be most successful in our society are going to be the smart ones. The ones mm. who are, are not as smart, the ones who were traditionally the laborers, the ones who are kind of the, the middle tier people, they're going to be left behind. And right. society is just generally going to be focused on the people who are there at the top. And if it sounds like I'm talking about, you know, some kind of Elysium type scenario or that, yeah, I am actually, or Megacity one. There's a better one. Mm. Um, yeah, I am actually, because I see that's, Kind of where I think things are headed towards, maybe not quite as bad as megacity when I hope, but <laughs> but he- heading towards a situation where you know the basically the smartest people the, are going to end up being the elites of society because they're going to have machines and other things to do all that grunt work that everyone else did before. Yeah, but and I... they might not be truly smart people because God knows cor- people and corporations are not always truly the smartest ones. But I mm. think that there's going to be that value of intelligence is going to be very. Uh, highly prized in society because that's going to be the way to get ahead
0: yeah but i can see it going the other way that what ends up happening is because of technology and automation there just aren't that many spots at the top so mm. no matter how smart you are it doesn't matter because you know the third generation son of you know, the the Richinton family has already got that spot and you'll see the intelligent become villains again because there'll be symptoms of the technocracy that's keeping us all down and took all of our jobs and is now has us like sitting around the uh, burning oil drums full of pallets. And then, the other thing that I could see happen just to
1: continue your line of thinking uh, to, and go against what I was just saying though, mm-hmm. is that I can see the, uh, the dumb jock character becoming the lead hero in care in stories again, uh, mm-hmm. or that that glorification of the average man simply because that's who they're selling the product to like yeah. they're glorifying it because no 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 you don't want to be at the top being average is awesome don't worry about it you know just just you know, drink your soma and uh, <laughs> enjoy your and en- enjoy your 3D holographic porn vids you know it's okay that's 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 normal that's the way life should be just
0: enjoy yourself down there actually no you know what you just invented what the next iteration of cyberpunk because, if you remember cyberpunk and this kind of goes with what what uh Jack was talking about a little bit ago there, the mm-hmm. heroes of cyberpunk could utilize the technology, but they were instinct, they were always like people of the street, they were fighters, they had a rough life mm-hmm. um they weren't pampered, they were all reaction they weren't there was very little intellect for most of them and I think mm-hmm. you might see that again i mean it's it's kind of the same thing that you saw like in the 70s going into the 80s with all the uh, exploitation tough guy cop films, Mm -hmm. that there was this idea that the engineers, that society, people at the top, the intellectuals who did all their yak and let us down and things collapsed. Now we need the tough guy man of action who's just all instinct and ignores the book and slams against society and blows shit up. And I think, yeah, that might become, that might become real life at a certain point.
1: Wow. Cool. Or not. Yeah, it depends. It might not be so cool to live it, but we'll find out.
2: Well, it, yeah, it'll be cool if we're outside of that, exactly. <laughs> looking in.
1: Yeah, we, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you don't want to be uh, in the middle of all that, but okay. <laughs> well, so society could go either way. I'm, yeah. Actually, I'm starting to think it might go towards dawn. Well, it'll flux, right? It'll go mm-hmm. back and forth. I think within certain parts of society, intellectualism will be valued, as it always has been, but within other parts, it won't be. Mm-hmm. And I think that Hollywood has been very good at pitching itself towards the lowest common denominator, as I mentioned earlier, and that includes intelligence. So that's one of the reasons why everything is pitched towards something that your quote-unquote average man, which is not really all that average, which is which is mostly about a 13 or 14-year-old level, um, can understand. And I think that's where they're pitching everything, so that's their idea of intellectualism as well, is someone who's a little smarter than a 14-year-old.
0: I I think, though, I think um, I wouldn't be as judgmental about it. I think you're right. But I think, and this is one of, again, the problems you get with um, modern-day mass media, Mm. is I wouldn't necessarily say dumbing down, Mm. but they got to simplify things because... Again, you need, like if I'm spending a hundred million dollars on a movie, I need as many eyeballs watching it as possible. Exactly. It's so economics. comics. Yeah, so I got to kind of smooth it out so that I'm going to not cheese off as many people as possible so that I can, I can get them interested in my product. But that leads to that idea that, um, number one, I can't really put too many controversial or in-depth things because people won't be part of that and won't understand it and mm. number two the audience themselves starts getting climatized to the dominant formula mm-hmm. which i yep. think is a. I think is again why you get say for intellect you get that flux because it kind of depends on what's going on in the world mm. what kind of intelligence we value and how we value because people want results speaking of results though guess mm-hmm. what if you
1: make a movie that's entirely based on system one and doesn't require the audience to think they tend to like it a whole lot better mm-hmm. in, yeah. in fact that's what that goes back to um i think we talked in a previous show about you know the one big idea rule where you can mm-hmm. add you know one big new thing to a story and expect the audience to accept it but if you add more yeah. than one big idea they won't accept it that's system one and system two. Think about it. What you're doing is the stuff they already accept is all system one. As soon as you introduce new ideas or things that push them a little bit, that's system two. And so That's
2: my Green Lantern axiom.
1: Yeah, it yeah. is actually. Yep. <laughs> it does come back to your Green Lantern axiom, um, which, again, is the idea that you just can't put too many big things in a story. You can't require them to do too many system two things. Otherwise, they won't like it. Right. And that's right this is one of the reasons why we don't really make to be blunt intellectual movies i mean there are still some but they're mostly done as indie movies and they'll never see a, a wide re- they'll never see wide distribution right. is because they won't make that much money and the studios know it i mean during the new hollywood era of the 70s they would make films that actually challenge the audience in one form or another mm-hmm. uh, even while they were bemoaning they saying oh it's all being so dumbed down but actually compared to today no they were they were producing gold <laughs> in some cases um, they were really making the audience think. Like a classic example would be Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. That movie would be never made today because it forced yeah. the idea to think about issues and to think about what divorce means and what child who should have children and all like all these issues. People don't make issue movies because people don't want issue movies. They don't yeah. sell well. They don't make money because they require the audience to use system two to think, and the audience like Glenn, doesn't want
2: Gary, that. Gary Glenn Ross, right? Yep. Same there we go. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: They're yeah. rare as hen's teeth because they don't generally make money unless you really are good at sneaking it in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then any depth you show now in a standard Hollywood film is considered a wonderful show of intellectualism, even when it's <laughs> really not. Because you've just stepped above, you've, you've used a tiny bit of System 2. And if you make any use of System 2 whatsoever, that's considered intellectual at this point.
2: So in other words, yeah. System 2 movies are more likely to win Oscars. They ah.
1: are, actually. They're, <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much what they are.
2: Yeah, if you look right. at
1: any Oscar winner, it's probably a System 2 movie. It's probably more... Yeah. has question. It, it has more System 2 content, but not too much, just no. enough. Actually. So that, so that it makes the audience feel smarter about themselves, that they understood it, and they got it, and they were willing to
0: right. sit well, through I, it. I think there's a catch, though, because I think you guys have hit upon that idea, because historically, um, a lot of the big Oscar intellectual award-winning movies aren't necessarily really popular... But I think cause what's happening is the people who vote for things like that and tend to rate things like that tend to have that supplementary knowledge. They've studied film, they they've compared film and that. Whereas the average person doesn't care. We just want to see how how did they put that in generation ech, Duh. tits, guns, and explosions. <laughs> ah, the Michael Bay approach. Yeah, basically. Yes. But and and then that's the thing, and that's where you get that disconnect between film scholars and the audience, because the scholars are the ones that, like I said before, took that time to develop that supplemental theoretical knowledge about films, whereas the audience just enjoys, you know, sitting down watching a film. Yep. Tits, guns, and eyeballs. Well, that works.
2: my friends, I have to say good evening to new. I have to go pick up my lovely wife, but hmm. thank you so much for uh, giving this intellectual system to uh, show for me to think about <laughs> Oh, it no, was a lot th- of fun. Th- thank yeah. you for
1: coming on and contributing what your system two could come up with to this uh, <laughs> to this discussion, Jack. Like continue,
2: some... and I'll listen to it when it's on the podcast.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Sounds like some Good weird, night.
0: weird cult handshake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good night, Jack.
1: Thanks for coming on.
0: Yeah. And a merry system two to yourself as well.
1: Exactly. <laughs> there we go. But to continue on, so. I think that and and i've been thinking about this for a little while actually is that i think one of the keys to being a successful writer in some ways is actually knowing exactly how to skirt that line between system one and system two in Mm. what you're producing because remember most when most people are enjoying a book or a movie or whatever they usually are talking about how they're immersed in it like they basically become part of the story and just go with the flow that's all system one stuff and i think that for the best writer is one that actually has that balance. You need some stimulation. You do. Mm-hmm. You can't make it completely baseline system one. And that's the thing, right? When we're talking no, about can No, you can. System... <laughs> well, you, you... well, that's called porn. But anyway. But... I was going to say, no, it's called the Transformers. But whatever. Well, yeah, okay. Good point. A Michael Bay film. Yeah, good point. <laughs> um, you Even when we say system one and system two, I, you... Daniel Kahneman himself said that those are super generalizations first and foremost. There is actually yeah. more systems, but those are kind of the, those are almost blocks of systems. And so they're also a range. So you can mm-hmm. get stuff that's you baseline or, you know, even minimal system one stuff. And then you can get high functioning system one stuff as well. Right. And so there is stuff. And I'd say that the best entertainment usually sits either kind of midline or to highline system one stuff. And the reason I'll say this is, is because the audience still has to get something out of the story or feel that they're getting some kind of knowledge or something out of that story or they won't be satisfied. Yeah. There there has to be something there that's giving them something. It can be, uh, I think I talked about this before, it can be emotion, it can be novelty, it can be uh, information, it can be skills, um, whatever. But it can actually, those are all things that the audience has to feel that they're getting from a story. Or else they won't really, or, or perspective. That was the other mm. one I was forgetting. Or they have to feel that they're getting these things from a story. Or else they're they're not going to be kind of unsatisfied. The story will come across as being well, there'll be nothing there basically. And even yeah. with porn, you're still getting emotion out of it. Um, um, you're just, you're just getting, a heap, you're getting a heaping helping of emotion. <laughs> well, you know, lust is an emotion. You know, there's 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 yeah. definitely stuff there. I, I rank that with emotional experience. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Um, and even a Michael Bay film, again, there's, it might be focused pretty much purely on emotion. You're not getting much skill or intellectualism from a Michael Bay film, um, uh-huh. or knowledge or much of anything. You're just getting emotion basically. And maybe some novelty if you haven't seen that kind of explosion or that kind of shot done before, I guess. Well, there's, um, yeah, but there's, there's definitely
0: a market for that. There's catch. I think what we're going to have to do is mm-hmm. link to the, uh. Link to the um uh the epic rap battle of history with uh Steven Spielberg versus uh Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, interesting. Why? It ties in a lot with this idea of emotion versus intellect. And it, it sounds strange to to say and it's funny. It's one of their best ones. But it kind of ties into some of what we're getting at. Um mm-hmm. one of the things that I'd always heard when it comes to producing any kind of entertainment is you always kind of want to wring the emotion out of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That tends to be the focus. And I, I can kind of see, because I think that's like you're saying, you're giving the audience something. That's what they're going to get. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things you can do that we don't get for a while is you can always put a little intellect underneath that. If you can. And that's where you get like, if you do something a little different or if you've got a story that sort of comes together. And I think this is one of the reasons why Ah, uh, so many, like, movies and that are forgettable. Mm-hmm. Like, they come out, they're the most important thing ever for, like, a month, and then they just totally disappear because they don't make that impact. Because, again, um, and I think we talked about this a long time ago, too. Probably. Uh, I've always subscribed to the idea that what sticks with the audience is the thing that they can't rationalize. Hmm, Okay. And that's why most movies are totally unmemorable. Like even going back to the past, a lot of them, because they never give you that one thing that you just can't. It's like the piece of popcorn stuck between your teeth. You don't. You don't get that. Mm. Because that's the thing that keeps you coming back. That's the 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 cognitive dissonance. That's the 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 aspect that makes you think you're onto something. That you found some like obscure clue or important koan that if only I could solve.
1: Actually, I just finished a book by a guy named Brian McDonald, uh, Uh who wrote a book called Invisible Ink. He's actually a Hollywood screenwriter, Mm -hmm. and that's the stuff he would refer to as Invisible Ink, which which is where the title comes from. The stuff that's between the lines, the stuff that's implied, the subtext, Mm -hmm. the things that you, the things like, for example, dramatic questions that are part of a story, but they're created naturally and they almost run on a subconscious level while you're Mm -hmm. experiencing the story. And I think that that's what really what you're talking about is that there has to be something to a story that, yeah, as you said, you can't quite, um, you don't, you're not completely comfortable with it. It raises some kind of question in you that you're not really able to deal with. And so you're like, okay, what does that mean? And so often you'll come back to the story again because you're still puzzling over that issue. Mm -hmm. And, And I think if it's done well going back to the whole system one and system two thing that makes me suspect that what's happening is you have managed to slip in a system two level problem while keeping the audience in their system one state so they don't quite know how to handle that and so their brain is kind of is kind of stuck you don't turn you don't you don't give give it to them in such a way that it actually triggers system two but system one can't quite deal with it
0: Mm -hmm. and i think that's why um an example would be uh Mm -hmm. When Silence of the Lambs came out. Right. Everybody loved Hannibal Lecter. And I think it's because he was clearly the villain. Hmm. But there were a couple of times where he went, no, he's got a good point there. And they did that without ever making him not be the villain. And that was why that stuck with people because... Actually, I would disagree in some ways. I don't think he's the villain of the story. Well, he's not... He's not
1: the villain. Buffalo Bill is. But he's but, definitely yeah. a villain. <laughs> oh, Hannibal Lecter's a villain. I wonder. But in mm. a lot of ways, if you think about he's actually more of just like he's a mentor character. He's actually closer to Obi-Wan Kenobi than he is Darth Vader in a lot of ways. He's just a really sick and
0: twisted Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, I'd say he's probably closer to Palpatine. But, yeah, I think. <laughs> and, and I think that's the idea is that he, he is. He's that—he's the mentor. He contributes to, to, the, to the hero but he never stops being evil while he does it.
1: There's a old bit of writer advice that the best villains are ones that the audience, even for a short brief period of time, emotionally connects with. Yeah. If you can make them emotionally connect with someone that they really know they're not supposed to, it throws a monkey wrench into their thinking and they have to kind of work hard to rationalize that and think Mm -hmm. about, well, what do I, why do I agree with that bad guy? What's up with that? (laughs) And it has an interesting effect. It will often either make them hate the bad guy more because it's kind of like they're pushing it the idea away or they find that bad guy even more attractive and interesting. And so mm-hmm. it brings them to life more.
0: Sometimes both. Yeah. Well, and again, too, it makes sense because it's... it's. I think you're right that what happens in a case like that is you're getting that emotional kick, but yeah, it makes that little bit of intellectualism kick in. And it's it's not enough to frighten you. It's not enough to make your brain hurt, but mm. it's just enough to make you... It, you feel like you've achieved something a little bit more because you've used that mm. muscle you haven't for a while. Yeah, exactly. And especially if you're someone
1: who is inclined to use those muscles and actually enjoys them, so to speak, it will definitely make you feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Actually, I just had a thought. Okay, mm-hmm. this is a slightly tangential to what we're talking about because this is writing theory, of course. Let's. Okay. Qu- but it's clo- this is closer back to our original topic. Is the fact that pretty much every villain is intellectual of one form or another, almost always, in Mm -hmm. our pop culture and media in North America, is that inadvertently uh, demonizing smart people? Is that inadvertently actually creating an anti-intellectual bias in society?
0: Well, that's a good question. I think – I don't think it's creating because I I think – if it does have an influence, it cues up with something that's already in people's heads. I don't think it's putting like mm. a brand new idea. Right. I think what you end up with, because um, when you guys were talking about this, I was thinking part of the problem with writing and mm-hmm. why your villain tends to be the intellectual is because the villain tends to be the motivator. Mm, true. Like they have a plan because the hero has to react to that plan. And and a villain who hmm. who and you can do a story where the villain is just like ah me smash. Oh, you what? can. You totally can. I, I would argue. It,
1: okay, it, there's a catch to that though. But yeah, well, you can. <laughs> um, it depends whether you have a changing or unchanging lead, right? Because if you have an right. unchanging lead, then the villain has to be the one who's doing all the work because the hero's not going to change anyway. So yeah. the villain has to be the the motivator because in a lot of ways it's usually the villain's story, not the hero's story. It's about them trying to do something and the hero reacting to it Um, with the the unchanging hero. If the hero is changing, usually they're someone who is actively, they're the motivator of the story and the villain is the one who's pushing back and keeping them down.
0: Yeah, they can be, but I think, again, more often than not, the villain is is the thing that sets the story in motion. Mm, Often, usually, yes. Yeah, because they're the ones that disrupt the natural flow of things and most stories are about something that disrupts the natural flow of things
1: well the general it's usually called the inciting incident in most screenwriting books um and it's basically it's an event that comes from outside the main character's life that basically gets them off their couch and gets them off their phone and puts them into the game so to speak Mm -hmm. and it can be as simple as in a murder mystery it's you know the the jogger finds a body and suddenly the cop you know has to Get up at two in the morning, and you know has a fight with his wife, and then goes down and smokes a cigarette and says, "What do we got here, Ed?" That um, it can be that, or or it can be a character thumbling across a, a crate that dropped out of a truck that happens to have a you know pseudo powered armor in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be it can come in all different forms, but some kind of inciting incident has to happen that's
0: outside the character's control
1: that kind of sets
0: the ball rolling. Yeah, although to to, to absolutely. Confound the issue further, mm. when you enter a hug a nerd era, right? It's usually the hero that starts things, and the hero is the smart guy. Because I'm thinking, like, say Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ferris right. is the instigator. Yes, um, you're looking actually, at. Actually, you could make an argument that Ferris is actually the villain in some ways too. Yeah, they, I've 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 seen that. I've seen a few different takes on what's actually going on in that movie. Because mm. no, apparently. There's a couple of Cracked articles about it, I think. Yeah, because apparently there, the, the, there is one scene that got taken out. Mm-hmm. And it adds a little bit of depth to things. Mm-hmm. And really? tying in with our conversation, it sort of uh, makes me, mm-hmm. me not wonder why it was taken out and feel a little sad that it was taken out. Mm-hmm. If you remember when his sister meets that, like, guy right. at jail? Mm-hmm. I forget his name. He has a, he has a story. Right. Right. The whole premise was the reason that Ferris wanted to take a, oh, what was his name? Carmen, was it? Yeah, Carmen. Yeah. He wanted to take Carmen out because he says it, that this guy's never had a day of fun in his life and he wants the they're almost going to graduate and he wants Cameron, Cameron. Cameron. That was it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he wants Cameron to have this good day and have a taste of life because that way he doesn't, I believe the phrase was just marry the first girl he lays and, and and then his life is over kind of thing. Right. Yeah. There was an extra scene to that where Ferris explains that there was another kid Mm -hmm. that was kind of in Cameron's shoes and he was kind of withdrawn and that. And this kid ended up getting into some bad shit and he ended up like dropping out of school and throwing away his life. And he doesn't want that happening to Cameron. This was somebody Mm. that he tried to help, but he couldn't And in a way that whole day is Ferris trying to make up for that mistake that he made. Mm, Okay. That guy in the jail is that kid that he failed.
1: Ah, uh, okay.
0: That was why cuz if you remember they show him, they make and it's like Charlie Sheen, he was a, an, an actual known actor and he's in right. there for like 4 minutes and you're like, "I don't why why is this?" just so? and and that was the original story. Hmm. Which again makes him less of the villain. Like,
1: yeah, that's true. He well, he's well, he's doing the right thing or at least as he sees it anyway. Mhm. Okay, okay, that makes sense. But
0: uh, but so, so back to your original point. mm mm-hmm. Mhm that that's the yeah i guess it's it doesn't really help that that thing at all cuz i think mm-hmm. i think the anti-intellectual thing is always kind of there to some degree mm-hmm. and i think it might be because like like you guys were saying that the type 1 thinking the reactive the gut the 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 truthiness kind of thing yeah is comes easy whereas the type 2 the intellectual the sitting down pondering out it doesn't come natural, and it takes more effort, and that's why we tend to shy away, especially entertainment,
3: hmm.
0: especially in the last decade or two. Because, like we said, there's a lot more pandering because there's a lot more competition for audience. Hmm. That the idea of anti-intellectualism was sort of a byproduct, and that was where the idea of wisdom is hmm. kind of your workaround because that lets you have a smart character who doesn't become that you know Poindexter cold-hearted intellectual, right and it's
1: interesting actually at least in traditional going back to asian culture since it seems to keep coming up cuz again mm-hmm. they have the uh different view of intellectualism though i do find actually a lot of their detective characters actually usually tend to be more wise than they are actually smart yeah um because it makes them much more
0: relatable i mean it's here yeah. it's the columbo thing basically mm-hmm. and i th- i think that's part of it too cuz i think if you're going to look at like uh china and japan and, mm-hmm. and Taiwan and like, like the, the far East, I think there's a tendency too that we're seeing them as being more different than they actually are. Well, they're, yeah, they're still human beings, but I, but I think even it's just the trappings are different, but the idea is mm. there. Cause, cause you're absolutely right. And there does seem to be more of a tradition, even mm. in somewhere like Japan that is 20 mm. years into the future from us, of hanging on to some of these old ways and these old traditions and these old perspectives. But like I say, we do that here too. And that's where you get, like I say, like the, the homespun detective and the old country doctor and that. Oh, then yeah. I think I think that's our version. And I think it, it serves that same function. It's, it's that idea of the tried and true. It's that right. idea. It's intelligence with warmth, which feels more like Just Mm. reaction. It feels more like type one. Um, It's acknowledging the past. It it it's fulfilling that same role. Well, keep in mind, sorry to interrupt, but Mm. this
1: just suddenly occurred to me. Also, with wisdom, there's the catch, right? In theory, all of us can be wise. In theory, you can always tell yourself, well, one day I'll be like, you know, like the old country doctor there in that drama or whatever. Whereas not everyone can be smart, and most people know it. I mean, you know, we all have our basically range of intelligence where we're going to sit, mm-hmm. and it's mostly determined by genetics and a little bit by upbringing. But I'd say mostly
0: genetics.
3: Meh.
0: I don't know. I think you. I think anybody can be be smart. You might not be like Stephen Hawking's, but you can. You can. You can develop an intellectual streak. Oh, you can! I'm not arguing with that. I think that IQ can be developed.
1: As I said earlier, the brain is like a muscle. You can work it, but. I will never be Arnold Schwarzenegger and it's mm-hmm. just not going to just just the same as I will never be Stephen Hawking. I mean, we have our own built-in limits whatever they are. We have our yeah. own kind of natural range where we sit. That doesn't mean that we're stuck at that level. It doesn't mean you will know, say we couldn't go 10 points up or 10 points down depending on how we you know, do things, but I do think that each of us has our own limitations. Yeah. And we're aware of that. I mean, your average person doesn't think I could be just like Sherlock Holmes. Rather, but your average person
0: do. What? Some people do. <laughs> Some
1: people do. That's true. But I think your average person can still look at Matlock there and go, yeah,
0: I could be just like him when I'm older. Yeah, maybe. Because I, I think you might have hit part of why um, pure intellect is typically the domain of the outsider. Mm-hmm. Why? Because like you say, because it's the sort of thing that a lot of us, whether we can or not, we feel like we'll never be, you know, we're not going to be Einstein. Right. Yeah. And then that's why somebody who is Einstein is kind of, they're a little out there. They're different from us. They're a little apart from us to some degree. Right.
1: Well, actually, if you're Einstein, you're more than a little apart from most of us. Same with Stephen (laughs) Hawking. (laughs) Kind of. Here's a weird thing. I think that part of the reason why Stephen Hawking was so popular and so accepted was because of his disability. Even okay. though he was literally a you know godlike intelligence, he was trapped in this shriveled, crippled body. Mm-hmm. So we, so he wasn't threatening at all. People looked at him and said, "Oh, you know, he's just kind of like." Weird crippled cousin that you know or uncle that uh, people could still kind of relate to him in a weird sort of way because he had that weird balance where he was so crippled, so physically crippled, but intellectually huh. he was so gifted. And so it, it go back to my idea of balance earlier. Whereas if he had looked like you know Dwayne the Rock Johnson
0: and had that intellectual streak, I think people would have been fucking terrified of him. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and I think that ties in too because, um. One of the, the there there's a common myth about Einstein that mm-hmm. he was like crazy absent-minded. He'd do stuff like leave his house without pants. Yeah, totally not true.
2: Mm-hmm. There's the I could there see was that.
0: there was the myth that when he was a kid he sucked at math. Totally not true. He was really good at math. Well, he, he, again, he, that goes back to the idea of two
1: things. One, they're trying to humanize them, yeah. and, uh, and and two. They're trying to go with
0: that idea that we can all be just like him if we work hard. And I think, I think you're right too, that it's that idea to, uh, to humanize a bit that if if he's got like some kind of weakness, Mm, because, because I, Einstein is kind of the embodiment of the uh, scary intellectual for a really weird reason. He created nuclear weapons that could kill us all. No, technically he didn't create them. They just kind of took what he came up with and, and used it. But when he came up with his uh, his uh, general theory of relativity, mm-hmm. and I remember this because I had a professor at university that, that told us this story, and, and it kind of always stuck.
3: Because
0: mm-hmm. he said that was kind of where you started getting the separation of intelligence from the average person. Was that this theory comes out, and there was this big article that came down the wire about his new way of uh, essentially the beginning of quantum physics. Mm. And it was um, the headline was something to the effect of brilliant new theory of reality that's only understandable by eight wise men. Those eight men being the the first scientists that had reviewed and discussed it. Right. Yeah. And this was what the the professor said was the beginning of this idea that the the lofty levels of intellect were way beyond the average person that you had to be some Mm. kind of mutant was that article. Huh. And it's, it's interesting because I do think that we do have this need of making the intellectual defective in some way so that they don't just take over. Yeah, we're terrified of, yeah, the super intellectuals who will just mm-hmm.
1: walk all over us.
0: Yeah, so they have to be, and this is where the idea, they have to be like the social unit poindexter mm. or their body has to be. Withered somehow as their intellect developed, or they have to be like totally absent minded and goofy. Mm-hmm. Because this ties in with something I was thinking about going the other way mm-hmm. that another big myth of society is that serial killers are intelligent people. They are totally not. Well, there were, they always are in stories. There are, but in real life too, there's this idea. I think there's 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 been one or two of the big name guys. Mm hmm that they, they discovered were actually really smart, but most of them aren't, Huh. but we have this idea like, uh, Oh, what the hell? The guy who was on the dating game, Rodney Alcala. Yeah. I think he was, he was kind of one of the guys that they found was kind of, kind of had a high IQ and then that stuck. But when you look at most of them, mm. they're not actually really intelligent people. When you think about it, um, uh, the BTK killer. Mm-hmm. They caught him because they uh, he sent his manifestos out on on disk, on old school floppy disk. Mm-hmm. And he phoned the cops up and said, "Can you trace like a floppy disk?" And they said, "No, we can't." And that's how they caught the dumb fuck. But <laughs> but, Sorry. but and there, and there's a bunch of them. They discovered they weren't really. Some of them had had like well below average. But there's this myth that mm-hmm. serial killers are, in, are are these like geniuses, and I think it's because on one hand, we're always kind of afraid of the really smart guy, and on the second hand, we like to think that the only reason they can get away with this is because they're smarter than everyone else, and not because our system isn't really set up to deal with a mass murderer, because that's such a weird, rare event. Exactly. And on the third hand, for those mm-hmm. of you who have three hands... Um... <laughs>
1: going back to what we say every villain in a story has to be you know a smart guy for various yeah. practical reasons in the story so whenever they introduce a, a serial killer character they are always some like crazy genius usually
0: well they they are now because when you mention that going back to like the 70s a lot of them weren't that smart actually that's true um,
1: even if you go back to, uh, Dirty Harry, when I think about it, mm-hmm. the original Dirty Harry film, the character played by Andrew Robinson, whose name escapes me. I just remember the actor for, cause he mm-hmm. was on Deep Space Nine and he was Garrick on Deep Space Nine and, and he's a great mm-hmm. actor. Um, anyway, the, if I remember it, right, his character was pretty average intelligence wise. He wasn't dumb, but he wasn't some genius either. He was yeah. no Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And I've seen older stuff where, yeah, they tend to actually be a little bit crazy and a little bit...
0: Um, feral but usually they're not that smart yeah cuz part of the idea going back to like the 70s tough guy cop films was that the only reason these guys were could commit crimes was because society itself was broken um the 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 oh, i can't remember the name of it but there's like one of bronson's first tough guy cop films that's like well, death wish no no it, it was i think it was one of the ones he did just before Because he made a lot of movies that were basically just Death Wish. But he tracks this guy down, this, like, rapist-murderer guy. And he's got him at gunpoint, and the police are coming. And the guy is like, and you know what's going to happen? I'm crazy. They're just going to let me out, and I'm going to do it again. Ha, ha, ha. And then Bronson shoots him and goes, no, you're not. And that's how the movie ends. Right. And, And that was the premise that, because, again, remember the 70s, there was a lot of societal upheaval net that people felt it was the system that failed so these guys were more a symptom they weren't intellectuals they were they were almost literally monsters like like you say there were these weird feral guys that only got away with it because Because the the, the system was fucked up yeah yep
1: and then but then silence of the lambs happened and every serial killer since then is like
0: james moriarty level smart yeah, and and I think because that established that new template, and it's funny because that comes out kind of right at the end of the hug a nerd thing. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, nerds are evil after all, huh? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm wondering if there was some undercurrent it tapped into, or if technically Hannibal Lecter killed all the nerds for a while. <laughs> he kind
1: of did in a way. I think he he basically just kind of showed that no, these nerds can be like totally evil. Um, I think that there's something else you might be forgetting a tiny bit. We okay. actually did have a couple uh financial crashes. Yeah. And the last couple of financial crashes were mostly the fault of the nerds too. Yeah. Okay. Um, so for example, we had the dot-com crash of the 2000s. We had the, uh, of course the great recession. There was mm. also one in the early nineties. There was one in the eighties as well. And yeah. I've noticed that e- e- after each one of them, it takes a little while for people to basically when those crashes happen remember suddenly all those smart people just lost a whole lot of people other people's savings and money and everything like that so there usually seems to be a bit of an anti-intellectual backlash that happens because damn you smart people for screwing us all over but then eventually things kind of go back to a kind of normal where smart people are kind of respected and admired again Mm -hmm. and then they crash the economy
0: again and the cycle continues yeah, you can kind of see that, because that goes back um the 2008 presidential election in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember, one of the big Republican talking points was, experts, what do they know, trying to tell mm-hmm. you what to do? And I might tie in with that, because, you remember, we had kind of a little fiscal oops happen around that time. Yes, we did.
1: Yeah. Um, it was It was a complicated election, though. I mean, technically, Barack Obama was a smart candidate. In fact, that was an interesting thing, because... Barack Obama was portrayed as being smart, but warm and you know friendly mm-hmm. and everything like that. And he was up against McCain, who was the embodiment of wisdom in a lot of ways. And it's interesting yeah. that
0: that was the one time when Andy Griffith didn't win. You know, yeah, kind. I think there's more complexity there too because I think I, do uh, I think he got hamstrung by his own party. And the I funny thing, when you mention that. Obama is portrayed as one of those like early to mid eighties hip cool Ferris bueller smart guys. that's true he was, yeah,
1: yeah, he, he was could've... the guy you'd want as your buddy back then, yeah, that's true, yeah, so that's kind of kind of a weird how that keeps
0: like kind of lap around
1: like that, well, I think. There is that admiration society in general for the hip cool smart guy usually you know, what did the uh what did uh, Simon Vail in our Russian show call it like the um the lucky fool oh you know, yeah that the Russians love I mean that's the kind of character that is always has a kind of universal appeal basically I mean even in our society I'd say we still like that kind of character too maybe not as much as the Russians but we do actually admire the the kind of slightly foolish, more average person who just has that kind of wisdom to them and a bit of luck, and so they win.
0: Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Hmm.
1: Weird. Okay, on that note, I think we should probably bring this one up to a close. Yeah, that went some strange places. It did, actually. This was an interesting podcast. It didn't quite go where I expected, but I think no. we had a really good discussion. True. And we yeah. might have even have kicked in a few people's
0: System 2s as we uh, had this discussion as well, at least I hope. Well, do you realize that we kind of started edging towards kind of uh, an intellectual scientific explanation for a lot of, like, stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing, dude. It's called no. using System 2. It's called using your brain. I think this is going to come back to haunt us in episodes in the future. It probably will, yeah. <laughs> well, the problem is as you get deeper and deeper in, you know, you uncover more and more stuff, and you start to figure out how it all connects and how it all correlates with other Mm. stuff that you talk about Mm. and so i suspect if one were to actually go back and listen to all our podcasts from the beginning there's probably actually a clear evolution the things we're talking about and some of the ideas and and you can see even our own thinking changing over time about certain
0: subjects yeah but the big question exactly so hmm? oh i was going to say are we going to use this for good or evil
1: Well, considering that we're reasonably smart people, the answer is evil. Duh. (laughs) I can live with that. Exactly. Me too. (laughs) Good night, folks. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!